0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm pleased to be with you this week to introduce to you what I think is going to be something that is going to be a lot more important coming up in the next few months, if not a few years, for CISOs and those who are doing security leadership roles, and specifically that has to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning. So as always, we're here to help you with your career, to provide you with some resources and some knowledge and hopefully a little bit of wisdom that are going to improve your ability to be successful in your chosen career. Please go ahead and don't forget to follow us if you're on LinkedIn at CISO Tradecraft or go ahead and make sure that you continue to subscribe to our broadcast so you don't miss any of the good stuff. Okay, so let's take a look at uh, this area. Now this is fun doing some research because I've heard a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and over the years and there's vendors that promise you stuff and it sounds pretty good. But do we really know enough to make prudent decisions? Can we sort the wheat from the chaff, if you will? I guess we'd have to do that manually. We couldn't program something to do it. But in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about. Could we take certain tasks decision-making in some cases, many cases, and automate it and do it in a way that we get some output that makes sense. Well, we, we care about this because there are some and there's soon to be a lot more either artificial intelligence or machine learning cyber security tools available. And therefore, we're going to need a little bit of advice in terms of knowing what to buy. When is it snake oil? When is it real? Uh, can they actually do what they promise? And another thought to consider the bad guys are reinvesting their profits as well. They're not just going out and buying vodka with it. Uh, and soon we may have a battle of AI agents that move so quickly that there's really no time for human intervention on either side. That may be the way we're trending in cybersecurity, not short term, but longer term. And the typical attack, scenario that involves either phishing a user and trying to get them to click on a link and open an attachment and download something and then press this and then the attacker gets in and develops persistence goes ahead does lateral movement and does a recon all of that what if that could take place automatically and the attacker really just has to fire and forget these uh, tools And then opportunistically, it doesn't just deliver to say, hey, I've got access for you, but to say, oh, by the way, you've got Bitcoin. Uh, There's already been a payout uh, made as a result of a fully automated attack profile. Well, let's take a closer look at this subject and see what it is that we could know as security leaders and professionals to hopefully make better decisions. Of course, the interesting question is, well, what came first, AI or ML? And it's, take a guess, what do you think? Artificial intelligence, machine learning. The answer is artificial intelligence by three years. In 1956, John McCarthy, computer scientist, cognitive scientist, coined the term artificial intelligence. And he basically said artificial intelligence is, quote, making a machine behave in ways that would be called intelligent if a human were so behaving, quote. Now today, we might wonder if there are some humans that behave in ways that we would call intelligent, but that's out of scope. Rather, what we're looking at is some, if you will, kind of sort of a Turing test, but more importantly, to be able to go ahead and demonstrate that this computer machinery, and it says basically making a machine, um, we would look at it and say, hey, it's, it's doing something, it's doing some reasoning. Now, machine learning, that term was coined by Arthur Samuel in 1959. And machine learning is a subfield of computer science that, quote, gives computers the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed. Hmm. Now, if you think about it, all machine learning is artificial intelligence, but not all artificial intelligence is machine learning. Think for a minute. Okay, if you have a chatbot, and a chatbot could be coded with thousands of rules, uh, that's going to be artificial intelligence. We talk to it. We think it's live. We think it's, we can interact. And it's, of course, a huge money and time saver for help desks and things such as that. It's a huge annoyance for many other people when you have to go ahead and navigate. But at least it's not the old IVR of, please press one if you would like to continue. And on and on, and all these kind of pre-recorded. Now we have chatbots that say, tell us in a few words what it is you're looking for. And uh, that artificial intelligence tries to go ahead and come up with reasonable answers. But if it's a static set of rules, if it doesn't evolve, if it doesn't adapt, then it's not machine learning. You see, machine learning uses experience to improve performance or to make more accurate predictions. Now, if you compare machine learning to statistical modeling, stuff that we probably did back in math class or somewhere along the line, we develop some static, maybe even chemistry or physics class where we have some idea. Uh, We develop a model. It's static. It doesn't change. And then we'll submit data, which we make sure it's clean, that we don't have any garbage in there. And we'll test our hypotheses. And Essentially, our goal is is that we want to go ahead and develop an algorithm that, based upon providing this input, give us something useful as an output, and that's a statistical modeling. To a certain extent, we might think of classical weather models as being out there. If the barometer is this and is changing in this direction, if the wind is from that direction, if the temperature has changed and so on, therefore, it's going to snow, rain, hurricane, sun, fill in the blank. And to a certain extent, then, that statistical modeling allows us to kind of guess what the weather is going to be like, provide a prediction. Now, machine learning is sort of another way around. Instead of having a static model, the data is going to determine the type of analytic technique that gets used, and then it's used to train the algorithm, which itself is not static. And sounds kind of interesting. How do you make something, how do you make a machine learn? Well, it requires, if you remember Johnny Five, input, lots of input. It requires a huge amount of data sets in which to effectively train. Uh, you can't just let it watch you play a game of chess once and say, all right, there, those are the rules, go figure it out. Well, yeah, it's not going to work. Till, but if it goes ahead and sees hundreds of thousands of games or can start to play and then learn, then what happens is that machine learning begins to augment the model and reinforces what works. There's three primary ways to train machine learning. The first one seems easy enough. It's supervised machine learning. We just train on data labeled by a programmer. And then what happens is that, okay, this is a A dog, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a dog, a cat, a dog, a dog. And every time the information is provided, that pattern is provided, the computer is given an answer. And as a result, it starts to say, hmm, dogs do this, cats do that. This is a letter A, this is a letter B. Hmm, straight lines only, angles with horizontal, but probably, okay, that's probably an A. Curves, but on the right side, but not the left side and concave perhaps. Okay. That's a B. And as a after a while These repeating patterns now, of course, you have to have Things that look for it. if you haven't told it to look for straight lines or look for curves It's not going to say hey, I wonder if curves are a good thing to look for But as you can see with the supervised machine learning as it goes through and it absorbs a whole bunch of data It starts to put them into bins and buckets and says hey with a higher probability, it's probably this and not that. And that's kind of straightforward, and I can get my head around that one. Now, unsupervised machine learning gets to train itself on unlabeled data. And from that, it has to identify patterns and, and create some statistical parameters that predict. And it's a little bit harder, as you can imagine, to go ahead and create this code. It's got to kind of figure out as it goes along and sometimes it gets it right sometimes it doesn't get it right and if you um, aren't able to provide some sort of a feedback it can come up with some wrong perceptions and things such as that Uh, which suggests perhaps then the third way the concept of reinforcement machine learning here our systems are going to train on unlabeled data but then you get feedback that's a cat no it's a dog okay fine that's a dog. Right. Cat. Right. Cat. Right. Dog. No, it's a cat. Okay, fine. I see. And then what happens then, it's sort of like trial and error. Uh, Google built their DeepMind. Well, actually, they bought DeepMind. But uh, that's how they built it that way, that eventually was able to go ahead and beat world-class Go programmers, essentially providing feedback. So over time, the unsupervised machine learning, if you will, gets a little bit of reinforcement, Uh, It's faster to go ahead and figure out what works and what doesn't work and eventually can provide some optimization. There's a link out there to a YouTube video showing how the particular DeepMind product was trained to use the old kind of game of Pong. And at first, after a few minutes, it just kind of sat there and it tried to move the thing back and forth and it didn't do too well. And then after about 10 minutes, it's still kind of floundering 20 or 30 minutes, now it's figuring out kind of how to play the game because the feedback loop saying, observe the score, observe your actions, observe what happens. Hmm, the correlation of the quote unquote reward, that is to say, this is what you're looking for, a higher score, seem to correlate with certain actions. And that's great. Therefore, let's do more of those actions, which mean matching up that paddle to the location of the ball or the little pixel, I guess, when it gets down to that bottom row. But then over time, which I thought was interesting in the video, as it kept playing and playing and playing and scoring and scoring, that the algorithm was able to determine, for those of us who remember how to play that game, that if you create a little tunnel through all those little bricks up on the top, and then the ball would bing, 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 bounce around up at the top, and then it would do all the scoring for you, that that was a superior strategy and therefore the device kind of like a human in a way by looking at these feedbacks was able to assess that if you could create a brick deleted behind another brick deleted behind another brick and you can repeat that however many times six seven however deep it is and then aim a ball in there it's going to do the scoring for you providing if you will a huge dopamine reward for the computer well obviously not really but In terms of the feedback, that's gonna be maximizing. Whoa, look at the score going up. I don't have to do anything, the score goes up. And as we start to see, when we do these things like a machine learning, to a certain extent, they're a bit like a human when we're programming it, in that it's providing some sort of a feedback. And when you get negative feedback, you say, well, let's do less of that. And when you get positive feedback, hey, let's do a little bit more of that. Now, okay, fine, that's great. But why would we wanna use artificial intelligence or machine learning. I mean, I can think of a couple ideas, but there's some general categorizations that have been uh, assigned. One of them is automating mundane tasks. Let's face it, humans don't want to go ahead and do the same thing over and over and over again. Well, at least I I don't find a whole lot of job satisfaction in it. And as a result, if I could automate something, remember, I'm not talking about necessary machine learning. The artificial intelligence is to be able to provide input go ahead and calculate some quote-unquote decision which generates some sort of an output think about a robot on a manufacturing line that has an optical scanner and an arm and a sensor that says when you see a part show up at the end of this conveyor belt move your arm over there, pick it up, move the arm over there, place it on the other location, release it, and then go back and wait. And now it's waiting for a certain input, and then it's doing it. One, it's not just a repeating cycle, because there is going to be a part there every single time at the exact 3.00 second interval, so that could just be replaced with a gear. But rather, it may arrive at your regular times and you want it to be able to figure stuff out so automating mundane tasks are a really good way to do that now some people are worried and kind of the e-luddites if you will if you remember it was edwin Ludd back in around 1810 1811 therefore kind of led the anti-industrial revolution movement and luddites as they were called were the people who resisted these uh, machines this automation because it's going to destroy humanity and take us over I don't know about you, but 200 years later, I think my life is a little bit better than it might have been back in the 1811 timeframe when we didn't have electricity or automobiles or indoor plumbing um, or uh, the internet, things like that, and podcasts. Therefore, sometimes these Luddites or E-Luddites, as I like to call them in the modern world, uh, may be resisting things more for emotional reasons or fear. Well, I don't think that these types of applications of AI are going to displace a lot of workers. It's not going to uh, cause a factory to say, hey, you know what? We don't need any people anymore. Everybody go home. Now you still need people, but you need different skill sets. And maybe to repair that machine if it goes down, program the machine going at the beginning. But now your people are freed up to do more rewarding tasks than simply just this mundane Put a bolt on a bumper, put a bolt on a bumper, put a bolt on a bumper and do that eight hours a day, five days a week, year in and year out. That's got to be mind numbing. All right. What else could we do with artificial intelligence? We could do some predictive capabilities. We could try to um, figure out some outcome. And therefore, what it's going to do is uh, perform a task where we think that the solution is going to be correct. Um, now it could be like expense management. Uh, if I have a, um, software tool and I'm trying to think of the name of it, I've got it and, and I use it expensive buy, where I can go ahead and scan a receipt and I can do translation of image to text. That's pretty easy. And it says, Hmm, this looks like a restaurant. I guess this is going to be coded as a Uh, Meals and entertainment for 2021, by the way, meals and entertainment expenses are at 100% deduction, not 50% deduction, as a way to stimulate the restaurant business after the pandemic. Hope you knew that. If not, uh, now you know that you can go out and uh, quote unquote write off the entire expense that you have for business lunches instead of only half of it. But being able to say, hmm, that goes to this particular function is compared to, oh, this says United Airlines, or this says Avis, or this is Hilton, or something like that. And now what happens is it can predictively figure out, if you will, what category it goes to. Now, most of the time, it's going to get it right. But if you had something like the uh, Avis Car Rental Cafe, I guess you'd probably get that wrong. And, of course, the idea is you can always throw curveballs at these artificial intelligence systems, these AI systems, and that's not the point. The point is, if you get to a 98 or 99% solution, you're probably okay, except when life safety is involved. Remember that uh, Tesla a couple years ago where a flatbed truck with nothing on it made a left turn in front of it, and the Tesla drove right underneath it? Well, of course, the bottom part of the car was going to clear, but where the human beings were, at least from the... I guess waste up didn't do so well. Um, The algorithm never saw it coming. Literally, it never was programmed for that. And so one of the dangers we have with these predictive capabilities uh, is things that, well, you have to know what you're looking for. And if you have some holes in your knowledge base, it could create some real problems. Not so bad when it comes to expenses, really bad when it comes to things like self-driving automobiles, which kind of brings us up to the next thought of intelligent decision making. And now what we do is we're trying to take the guesswork out by being able to provide some sort of a a proof or analytical proof of what we're doing. And so now if I'm trying to make a decision and I've got an AI engine available to me, I could put in my assumptions and it can come back and say, based upon 8,400 previous instances and 8,200 of them, this is what happened okay, well, it's kind of matched my data to a knowledge base data set. It's not learning anything. That is to say, it hasn't looked at it and says, oh, wow, you're different. I think you're special, just like everybody else. And as a result, this intelligent decision-making is more kind of a validation of something you might know rather than coming up with new ideas. Personalization is a big deal. I know that um, if you look at things such as Netflix recommendations and the like, but I think the organization that really nailed it in terms of figuring out an AI personalization algorithm, you thinking what I'm thinking, TikTok? Yeah, being able to know, oh, wow, you love like this, you're gonna love this, you like this, you're gonna love that and love that. And then what happens is, is based upon having this engine, which at some point I'm pretty sure was machine learning. They had to train it on a whole bunch of data. But then the question is, does that data still keep evolving? And I think it does. I don't have access to their algorithms. And even if I did, I probably couldn't make sense of them because they're probably so hugely complex. But the point is they seem to work and they seem to work really well. And therefore, machine learning algorithms do great for personalization. And probably one other way to do AI for a business reason is conversational interface. Okay. Any of us who have one of those devices around our house that says, hey, Google, or um, Alexa, do this. And if you've got one of those in the background, it probably lit up. And I was trying to be careful of not doing what Randall Monroe said in his car, too. When you walk into someone's home to see if they have anything listening, it says, hey, A-L-E-X-A, order two tons of creamed corn. Confirmed purchase. And uh, I mean... Again, I've had someone say, hey, your podcast set off one of my devices. Wasn't there a commercial that came out a while ago that they did that? And for a while, I think it was even an episode of South Park where everybody ended up with the same thing on their shopping list if they happened to have that in the area. Well, this idea of a conversational interface allows some speech recognition that allow users to interact in kind of a unique manner. Some people start assigning personalities to these things. They, they consider feelings, and it's interesting. There's a book on my bookshelf called A Man Who Lied to His Laptop, and it was recommended to me by Stephen Northcutt. And I think I'm trying to remember, did I read it, or it's on my list of things to be read? But essentially, the premise of the book is that as humans, we assign kind of an anthropomorphication if I got all the right syllables in there. Uh, anthropomorphize our devices, And over time, as we get better and better at these human-like interfaces, that's going to continue to the point where in the world of science fiction, where you start to see companions and bots and things like that, that are kind of accepted as kind of near humans, that uh, it's going to be operating on our neural system to say, wait a minute, this thing is responding and it seems to think and care and know, and really just a bunch of lines of code. So we've got, potentially five reasons here, and uh, automating mundane tasks, predictive capabilities, intelligent decision-making, personalization, and creating conversational interfaces. And again, I'll provide links for where a lot of these things come from uh, so that you can get some more information if you'd like. But let's take a look at what I've grouped into three types, or three groups of types, if you will, of AI applications. Uh, The first one is if we kind of go for the big stuff, deep learning. Uh, Deep learning, deep thought, right? If we remember that from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But essentially, what deep learning means is we're going to have multiple layers of computing. And the output of one layer goes into the next one, which goes into the next one, and therefore work pretty well for things such as pattern recognition, speech recognition, uh, recognizing images, maybe processing natural language and what happens is is that if we can do neural networks and the cloud helps a lot with that and we'll talk about neural networks and all basically well neural networks I they say they're computing systems that organize elements in a layered way kind of like modeling on a human brain okay and so uh, that was really one of my separate smaller categories of the types of ai but we'll reference it here, and I may mention it again. But essentially, deep learning seems to be where we're going for. Can we create a sequence of analyses that as one goes to the next, to the next, the next, it gets a little bit better, a little bit more refined, until finally we get to the point where the output looks really good. Another one is cognitive type of cybersecurity, where we'll, we'll train it on historical data. And now in our industry, we could probably use that, uh, make a AI system that's going to look at cyber threat data. And as a result, as certain actions come by, it can either map it to the MITRE ATT&CK framework or try to say, where are we? What stage are we at in the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain or any other model that we want to assign to it? And be able to say, hey, wait a minute, this looks like a technique or a tactic that is being used by other bad guys, it may in fact have a good use, but I think that this type of cognitive cybersecurity is often used in things such as the automated or near automated sensors that we're using uh, to be able to provide that early uh, response. Uh, there's a lot of data that comes pouring in from our endpoint detection and response sensors that's got to go to something and rather than just having it all pour pour into a giant data lake and allow some poor analysts to go sifting through that to a large extent if we program our sim effectively we're able to try to go ahead and look for these patterns and in a way I'll, I'll give you credit I'll call that some form of AI uh, Autonomous systems again another deep, significant use. As we talked about some of the dangers of autonomous systems going out onto the road, literally, without a fully trained data set. And uh, all of these things are enabled by the if-then-else, 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 these artificial intelligence. And if it looks like this and it looks like that, it's probably a duck and therefore, etc. Uh, what we're finding then is that we are, in my opinion, getting ahead of ourselves. We are in our zeal to say, wow, look at this thing. We can have self-driving this, self-driving that. Because of the variability of the reality, that is to say humans on the road with self-driving vehicles is a really bad combination. If you had only self-driving vehicles, you'd be fine. Think about the shuttles that are at your airport or some potential that you might have for some metropolitan transit systems. Those railed systems are isolated because you don't have users hopping on the rails, driving for a while, doing dumb things and getting back off. Same thing with roads. What do you think? You think in 10 or 20 years, much like we had horses more than a century ago, having to yield to automobiles and then trying to put horses and automobiles on the same street was a bad idea, and therefore they started to get segregated, that maybe we're going to have self-driving vehicle lanes and self-driving areas where you and I, as humans, are not allowed to operate. I, I can see that happening in the near future. How about something like a chatbot? Uh, we probably all experience that when you call a vendor or something like that. And all the chatbot's doing is essentially interacting with humans online with the goal of conversational text. Essentially, it's a form of, well, natural language processing. So let's talk about uh and natural language processing, not to be confused with NLP (neural linguistic uh, programming), but this type of NLP, if you will, enables computer systems to interact with human languages. It could be in writing, it could be speech, it could be translation, things such as that. Which brings up another one: How about translation? And there are tools out there that allow one to go ahead. I think there's an Apple Head app, and I think other ones do too, where one person could listen to Japanese. The other person speaks in Japanese and it's translated into, for example, English and back and forth. Uh, really helping those who like to travel swipe right a little bit, I suppose, when it comes to meeting somebody. Because now you've removed a language barrier. And imagine that in the business system. Right now, we often rely upon a translator, third party, who then is in on all these conversations. I can see that working at the United Nations. You're not saying very intimate things there, but kind of awkward going ahead and trying to get into personal conversations with the third human in there. Probably having some sort of an AI bot doing the translation is, I guess, a little bit less frightening. And to that, I guess we'll add things like virtual companions and robotic personal assistants. Uh, A virtual companion can be uh, some sort of a VR-based avatar and behave and interact just as a human would. I think there is a a great um, image of that in, was it Blade Runner 2049, or whatever the second movie was, where he had essentially a virtual companion. And then a robotic uh, personal assistant can do useful things and potentially can learn based upon training uh, what tasks to do. Um, Now, I guess perhaps other category that I put these NA groupies into would be different things such as uh, thought-controlled gaming, wearable technology, uh, brain computing interfaces. Uh, now that's getting to the point where, of course, all the, a lot of the vaccines are saying, hey, you get your second vaccine, you're going to get a chip injected. Well, I don't know. I got my second vaccine, and I got really good 5G coverage after that. But all kidding aside, the um, the idea of wearing wearable computer and then the interface itself has to be able to interpret what's the human's motions, movements, etc., cetera, and what does that mean? Um, if we want to fun- mimic human brain function, it's kind of a, a future area of development, neuromorphic computing. Um, robots that could perhaps be next generation, that could be intuitive and maybe even collaborate with humans, being able to go ahead and, and pull all that data and then act in a certain way. And now we're starting to see autonomous surgical robots. Um, I know that, for example, some people that need a knee replacement, or uh, facing kind of a messy, bloody, painful surgery, but now with a robot that could be programmed to say, although every human's slightly different, here's a ton of data, go ahead and do exactly the right thing every time. And I've talked to people who've had, I think it was knee surgeries done, Uh, that's been autonomous and they had spectacular results from it in terms of much smaller incision, less blood loss, less invasive, just doing exactly what was needed. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, and then the last group I had with things such as neural networks, which I had talked about organizing computing elements in the layered way that helps deep learning. Uh, pattern recognition, essentially making sense of patterns. Babies have to be pattern recognizers. As humans, it turns out if you, if you study, you'll find out that as a, a baby pretty much has not much pre-programmed into its brain other than Um, this is the outline of a face, this is a human face, and therefore focus on it. And that seems to be kind of pre-programmed as part of the firmware. And here's how to eat. And those two things tend to get you bootstrapped. But imagine as a baby trying to make sense of every pixel of everything that you have in your visual cortex. It would drive you insane. And therefore, we start to develop patterns. And more important with pattern isn't so much recognizing what's important, is eliminating that, which is not. And if you've ever seen the video of the guy in the gorilla suit when you're trying to count bouncing basketballs, you'll see exactly what I mean. We get so focused on the task at hand, we miss something uh, totally ridiculous and very much in our face. Okay. There is a whole bunch of stuff out there. And therefore, if we take a look at the type of machine learning algorithms, I found a Nice little article on medium.com uh, by a gentleman by uh, the name of Priyanshu Jain. And he divided machine learning algorithms into 11 different branches. Now I'm not going to go way into the detail here. And i got the little image up here on my, on my uh, monitor here. But let me take a look, kind of walking around uh, this list and give you kind of a high-level summary. Just so, again, we get our head around what's capable, what's possible with these types of technologies. Number one, Bayesian Bayesian machines. See, these are based on learning models that are based on Bayes' theorem, which is essentially calculating the probability of something happening knowing something else has happened. For example, what's the probability that Dogecoin will go up knowing that Elon Musk is hosting a Saturday Night Live show? Okay, if A, then B. And because of these conditionals, it turns out this machine learning helps when we have a lot of different independent variables. And therefore, what we'll do is we will start with some initial belief and then start to be able to feed it experiences, let it observe the outcome, and adjust accordingly. Number two would be a decision tree. Instead of if A, then B, then C, then D, which is kind of learning as you go, a decision tree uses estimates and probabilities based on what we think are going to be likely outcomes. And this is set up in a hierarchical manner. You have a root and you have branches and leaves and nodes and things such as that. And essentially, we train that with labeled data. And then what we're looking for is trying to identify what gives us the best determination based upon the data that's in. Probably use an awful lot on Wall Street and things such as that figure out how, to, how do you price an option? How do we know if this thing is for a, uh, a call in July and it's a strike price, it's going to be 6% above the current price. How do you price that? Well, it's more than just a time factor in there. You also have to figure out what's the alpha, how, and there's all kinds, there's a lot of other things like there in a the gamma. There's, there's a whole element of business there, but the decision tree, allows us to kind of apply some sort of a algorithm, if you will. Now, what happens when you've got so many different inputs, you can't make sense of them all? Uh, You've got a thousand different features, or you've got uh, data, and you've got all these surveys, and you can't figure out with all these questions. The concept of dimensionality reduction, basically reducing the number of elements in our data set to reduce our problem of trying to overfit our model. Well, what do I mean by overfitting? If I'm trying to go ahead and if I've got a survey and I've got 25 questions. And of which anybody could answer them four different ways. Now I've got to go ahead and say, okay, I've got four to the 25th power. Or two to the 50th power possible permutations. And that's a lot. And yet, it may turn out that some of those questions really don't matter or some of them have such a high correlation as they're redundant. And therefore this dimensionality reduction saying, let me simplify by being able to look at these correlations and say, Hey human, you know, you've got all these different things, but reality is this is only really what you care about. Hmm. And now I can go ahead and, you know, do some of this discriminant analysis and things such as that. The fourth one to be instant, instance-based. Essentially, after you compare current instances with previously trained instances that are stored in memory, because what happens is the instances creating the training data is going to be able to allow it to go ahead and update what's going on. And now in a situation like that, uh, a self-organizing map, for example, locally weighted learning, things that allow us to sort of figure out as it's going on. Another way to do machine learning is clustering. Kind of an unsupervised machine learning algorithm where the algorithm itself is going to try to make sense of whatever junk we throw at it. Um, Kind of doing a hierarchical clustering or figuring out maximizing, you know, what do we do? It's, it's all this stuff is we got this huge amount of things coming in. And now what we might be able to do is say, hey, how do I figure out uh, what things fit together? That is to say, if I'm Amazon and I've got all these people buying things, can I eventually figure out is there any type of behavior that makes sense? If after buying this product, does somebody usually just log out? that is to say that's their one and done if so maybe i want to try to upsell on that or do i have something that typically if a lot of people buy a then they like to buy b so let me go recommend b and all this data that's out there absorb it all in there and look for these unusual patterns in math we can do regression which is basically trying to best fit a line like a slope to the data Uh, and then we can use that to make predictions so regression analysis being able to plot a line, is it along, you know, y equals ax plus b, is it second order, is whatever it happens to be, but again, it's a matter of either doing something like a least squares fit or all the other stuff we might have learned way back when and how to do that. There's a concept of a, a rule system, and they work on rules that are either predefined by us or they kind of, the system kind of comes up with its own rules themselves, but It turns out that if we give them a predefined set of rules, uh, they're not very agile, but they go really fast, and therefore, um, they can do pretty well. They can work really well with huge amounts of data, or even if the data is constantly growing and can be able to do that, but you might take a, a hit in accuracy because, as is often the case, You can get accurate, or you can get speed, and they tend to be inversely relations. You know, one goes up, the other goes down, and things such as that. Okay, how about this one? Regularization. Yeah, say that fast five times. Um, Algorithms that are used in conjunction with regression or classification algorithms to reduce the effect of overfitting in the data, which, as we said before, is there's too many variables in use. And therefore, what we want to be able to do is do things to be able to Come up with ways to, uh, I guess, some of the techniques, least absolute shrinkage and selection operator, ridge regression. Again, not getting into the details, but just think about ways where the whole idea is, I'm looking for the simplest way to explain what's going on. All right, three more to go. Ensemble. Here we're going to combine various models to produce one optimal predictive model. Things that I can go ahead, uh, a random forest model or something like that. Uh, it's uh, hard to go ahead and get them really working together in a fast way because you might have a lot of different things that you're hooking together. And as a result, what we're looking for is a more accurate outcome, but don't necessarily expect it to be instantaneous in terms of its ability to get out. And then the last two, I think we've kind of approached neural networks. Basically, neural networks are a complex algorithm that works in layers. Take input from... Uh, put into one layer and then the output from a prior layer or layer becomes the input to the next one. And as a result, I can increase the number of layers in my neural network, which is going to make my accuracy go up, but it's going to tend to slow down. Now in the past, this wasn't really an area for fertile study just because of the computational complexity involved and the time involved. But As things are going faster and faster now with the capabilities we have, that's maybe the way we want to think about it. And these can be used for things like financial predictions, uh, detecting anomaly, uh, language um, processing, and things such as that. And the last one, which I kind of started out with early on, was the idea of deep learning, using these neural networks and constantly involving the model with new data. Kind of like, well, a human being. To a certain extent, self-driving cars should... uh, learn now what's interesting is if we think about how all these self-driving vehicles are are they all a bunch of individual ai engines that have been spawned at the factory and they're on their own kind of like we as humans or do they talk with each other do they communicate with each other share their insights share their wisdom And you get updates and then you can upload things and and gain it. And so that's really what's happening is we're, to a certain extent, crowdsourcing the knowledge and the wisdom of the information and then pushing it back down again to these vehicles to allow them to hopefully become smarter, which takes an entirely different discussion about how do we ensure supply chain integrity with regard to code that operates things such as an autonomous vehicle or self-driving vehicle or anything like that. Uh, that's outside the scope of what we want to talk about, but obviously something we think about. and therefore creates some interesting uh, opportunities. Uh, Google's Alphago is another example. They, um, these layers help make decisions. Now Microsoft Azure has a uh, machine learning algorithm, what they call their cheat sheet. and it starts out with a simple question, what do you want to do? And I'll give you the link in the uh, there. It's uh, aka.ms slant. ML Cheat Sheet, aka.ms. Hopefully you're able to go ahead and add that as a waiver to your DNS blocking because also known as Microsoft is what they actually use. And that ML Cheat Sheet asks the question, what do you want to do? Do you want to predict between several categories? There's one way you do it. Do you want to just predict between two categories? You'll use a much simpler model. Do you want to classify images? There's a way to do that. Uh, Do you want to generate recommendations? How about discover structure, look at similar data points, intuitively group it, find anomalies, unusual occurrences, Um, do predictions, predict different values using regression techniques, etc., and even extract information from text, figuring out what's going on. It turns out that there's a whole bunch of machine learning algorithms that are available out there for you. And as managers, as leaders, we need to at least be aware of what's going on with respect to this particular capability set that is becoming more and more available and therefore more and more relevant to what it is that we do as cybersecurity professionals. Essentially, artificial intelligence is going to be able to follow a set of an algorithm that provides some sort of an output that to an outside observer, it looks like, hey, it figured it out. Machine learning is adaptive. And as we said, not all AI uses ML, but it's the advances that we're getting in machine learning as it pertains to artificial intelligence, which is going to give us these greater capabilities. And and before we get to the point where we've created so much capability with our computers that we're ordered to report to disintegration stations, um, anybody remembers the 1967 Star Trek episode, A Taste of Armageddon. And if not, go look it up. It was a classic. Um, We can better understand how this works and and how to make sure it serves us and not the other way around. Well, hopefully you've found this discussion of value and interesting. And if so, let us know. Give us a little bit of feedback and say, hey, thumbs up. Or, hey, I learned this. Or, hey, you forgot about that. And and, uh, we'll continue to go ahead and develop material for you to help you out in your job, in your career, and give you the information you like. So, again, uh, CISO Tradecraft is available to you. You can download it. You can listen to it through podcasting, um, all all that you like. And uh, if you're on LinkedIn, send us a connection so we can go ahead and keep you up to date. Uh, So, as always, uh, wish you the best. This is G. Mark Hardy on behalf of CISO Tradecraft. Take care, and looking forward to talking to you again on another CISO Tradecraft episode.